Good morning. Let's pray. Lord God, we do thank you for your word. We thank you for your loving kindness towards us. We thank you for the clarity that you bring to our understanding of the truth that you lay out before us, the truth about Jesus Christ, the truth about our salvation, the truth about who we are in Christ. We ask that this morning that might become clearer and clearer to us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So we're studying the book of John, if you didn't know. It's on your but book of John, and we're on chapter 4 this week. Now, as we've uh, said before, the Apostle John wrote this book to prove that Jesus is the Messiah. Many things can be presented by him as evidence, and indeed he presents a, a bunch of things. They're like the fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy or, or miracles. But in chapter 4, what we're going to see this morning is that John presents us with Jesus' own testimony. That he is, in fact, the promised Messiah. This is extraordinary. It's, it's rare in the New Testament. What's more remarkable is that he reveals it to a Samaritan woman. Remember the parable of the Samaritan? You know how the Samaritans were treated. Well, he's going to reveal it to a Samaritan woman, a foreigner, an outcast even among her own people. Maybe you can identify with that. <laughs> I sometimes do. <clears throat> Maybe uh, people avoid you because of your past. Maybe they avoid you because you're a little different than the rest. Maybe you know someone who's like that. Maybe you're the one who treats them that way. This sermon is for all of us in any of these situations. But you know who doesn't do that? Jesus doesn't do that. Jesus doesn't turn away from us in our sin. He doesn't turn away from us in our rebellion. He never turns away from us. In fact, he came to save us. If you didn't know, he didn't come for the healthy and the socially acceptable. He didn't come for those who say they have no need of a Savior. He came for those who are sick and dying of sin. They're lost, and they're despairing, and they're all over our city. They're all over your own life, people that you know. Jesus is the hope of the hopeless. Take that to heart. Jesus is the hope of of the hopeless. He's the one who heals the brokenhearted and restores the forlorn. He lifts up our countenance when we hang our head in shame and in sorrow and sometimes in regret for the things that we've done. Psalm 3.3, but you, O Lord, are a shield for me, my glory and the one who lifts up my head. The images of him putting his hand underneath your chin and bringing it up to look at him. That's the image that we're given in the psalm. At the start of chapter 4, we learn that Jesus' disciples are baptizing more people than John the Baptist did. It's a competition. <laughs> and they appear to be winning. He's becoming popular. <clears throat> and you'll never guess who makes that nervous. Uh, Jewish leaders are becoming nervous. They're becoming worried about this. They consider John the Baptist a threat to their authority. And now they see Jesus in the same light. He offends the Roman officials creating political conflict for them. So they see Jesus as a troublemaker who stirs up the people. So biding his time, Jesus chooses to depart from Jerusalem, where he's been, and he heads back to Galilee in the hill country that's north of Jerusalem. It's a four-day journey, so it's going to take a while to get there. So he stops off at Sychar, a city in Samaria, for some rest and some refreshment. R&R, &R, always good, 
whenever you're tired, especially after walking a long way. Sychar is where Jacob's well is located. It's a half mile from Shechem, where Jacob's bones were buried after the exodus from Egypt. So there are a lot of things about this location, you know, that, that trigger our memories of other things that have gone on at this particular uh, location. It's where Abram first entered Canaan after God called him out of Ur of the Chaldees. Where Jesus is going was once a holy place, part of the promised land where the tabernacle stood at Shiloh. But now it has become a foreign land. I sometimes feel that way about our own country. It looks foreign to me these days. And yet Jesus has come here to redeem this woman at the well. That's what chapter 4 is about, the woman at the well. Very famous story. He's come to redeem her just as he came to redeem you. Just as he came to redeem you. He's the Savior of everyone who will believe in him. Everyone. No exceptions. Whoever will believe in him and call upon his name. And that's regardless of where they're from or what they've done. He is the Savior of all if you will call upon him. So in chapter 1, the Jewish authorities asked the Baptist by what authority he baptized. Was he the Christ? Was he Elijah? Was he the prophet that was promised by Moses? The Baptist said, no, no, not the guy, not me. But here Jesus will say, yes, I am the Christ. And I do have the authority to cleanse people of their sins. But he won't say it to the Jewish leaders. They cannot see the kingdom. They cannot hear the gospel. They can't hear his words. Instead, he reveals it to a woman who has come to fetch water for herself at this well. It's noontime. So it's hot. It's noontime, but it's when the sun is highest in the sky. Especially around this time of year, the sun being highest in the sky, those shadows that normally are long in the winter are very short in the summer, and especially short at high noon. So everything is bright. Everything is lit up. Everything is exposed. John has recorded for us this intimate conversation between a fallen woman and the Savior of the world who has come to quench her thirst. Let's begin at verse 7. A woman from Samaria came to draw water. Jesus said to her, give me a drink. For his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. 7-Eleven is on the corner. They've headed there. The Samaritan woman said to him, how is it that you, a Jew from that other tribe down the street, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Samaritans were a mixed race. Jews don't like that. I grew up in a town that was 90% Jewish. Um, the girls weren't allowed to hang out with us goyim, the outsiders. Not, not to happen. And the boys had to go find a Jewish princess, you know, to hang out with because they weren't allowed to hang out with those. The word they use is shiksa. It has, it has come to mean a nasty thing, but it doesn't really mean that. It just means a girl from outside of our tribe. And that's the case with her, this girl, this woman at the well. The northern tribes of Israel intermarried with the Assyrians after they were conquered by them. And the Judeans looked down on Samaritans as inferior stock, outcasts, good for servants but not much else. They were beneath their notice, hence that parable of the good Samaritan. 
But here Jesus is taking notice of her. He's willing to speak with her. This is unusual. Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, Give me a drink, you would have asked him. The word literally can mean you would have begged him and he would have given you living water. Jesus has turned the tables both socially and personally. She is being asked to serve him and yet he is offering to serve her, to give her a drink. He didn't come to be served but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. That's what we're told in Matthew. Now she's a bit confused by this free offer. Not something she has heard. The woman said to him, Sir, you have nothing to draw water with. Idiot. <laughs> what do you, if, if you won't deal with me, what have you come to a well for if you don't have your own bucket? And the well is deep, by the way. You're going to need a rope. So, uh, by the way, where do you get that living water? Where do you get that living water? Are, are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us the well and he drank from it himself as did his sons and his livestock. She mentions Jacob who was father of all the tribes of Israel, not just of the tribe of Judah, not just of the tribe of Benjamin or any of the other tribes of the north. So she's saying to him that they share Jacob in common. He a Jew and she a Samaritan. She's trying to find common ground with him. There's only one well for them both to drink from. It's been there a thousand years. Will he condescend to drink from the same well with her? You're a Jew. I'm a Samaritan. You're tossing out all the social rules that I'm used to. And you're speaking of a type of order that I've never heard of. Okay, you have my attention. But what in the world are you talking about? So Jesus said to her, verse 13, Everyone who drinks of this water, coming out of this well, will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring or a fountain of water welling up to eternal life. Basically sprouting. Non-stop. Well, guess what? Although Ecclesiastes says there's nothing new under the sun, this is something new under the sun. Water that quenches thirst forever, drawn from a well that never runs dry, and is portable. It goes with you everywhere. What's not to like about that? Still not knowing who he is, she asks for the water. Verse 15, the woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. Interesting. I don't want to be here. Just coming to this well is an embarrassment for me. It's a reminder to me. Give me something that will keep me from this shame that I have. She's got a purely pragmatic reason for asking for this. She is tired of having to draw water from this well in this town 
at this time of day. She wants to be set free from all that. She wants her burden lifted. But there's more to it than that. So Jesus tests her. As she tested him, she knows what she wants, the living water, but she doesn't know what she needs. So that's the question on the table here. Does this woman at the well know what she really needs? So Jesus said to her, go, call your husband and come here. Now that's a simple enough demand. Will she be honest about her sin? 17, the woman answered him, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, you know, you're right in saying I have no husband. We've had five husbands, and the one you have now is not your husband. What you said is true. There are no air quotes in Greek. (laughs) Husband means to be in quotes. Husband needs to be in quotes here. She's been with many men, but not in a marriage covenant. She's calling He is calling her to account for it, and that's why she's not there at the well with the other women in town. In the morning, when the water is needed, she has to go when the others have gone away because they want nothing to do with her. And have you ever been in that situation yourself? I have. Maybe you have too. Again, she's not only an outcast among the Jews, but an outcast even among the Samaritans. And yet Jesus, knowing this about her, accepts her. He accepts her. He's talking with her. He's willing to deal with her. He accepts her. And he asks her to serve him, and he's willing to serve her. There's a twist on it. He made her the gospel author of eternal life. Does she believe he can give it to her? Interesting question, isn't it? Does she actually believe he can give her this living water, whatever that stuff is? Is she willing to accept it? Will she confess her sins to this stranger and have this barrier that's been blocking her from fellowship with her fellow townspeople, blocking her from going to the temple in Jerusalem? Will she confess her sins to him and have this barrier removed? She has not repented yet. Jesus said, the one you now have, this man you now have, is not your husband. She's not married to the man she's living with, but she's giving him the rights of marriage without the covenant bond that demands faithfulness. And what she's going to be asked for from Jesus is faithfulness. He asks faithfulness from us. It's a covenant arrangement. She's living in sin. She knows that Jesus knows this secret, but then, well, so does the rest of the town. Flustered, nonetheless, she changes the subject. Verse 19. The woman said to him, Sir, you know, I I perceive that you're a prophet. (laughs) You know, our fathers worshipped on this mountain here, you know, but you say that in Jerusalem, that's the place where people should worship. What's that got to do with giving him a drink of water? What's that got to do with getting the living water? Nothing. <laughs> the offer's still on the table. His offer to her is still on the table. If you ask, I'll give you the living water that wells up unto eternal life. If you confess your sins, I am faithful and just to forgive you your sins and purify you from all unrighteousness. That's what he's hinting at between the lines. That's from 1 John 1.9. 
same author as this book. But she wants to talk about theology and politics. <laughs> now, uh, why? Those are less personal, aren't they? They're less personal topics. They don't require changing the course of your life or submission to God. It's like talking about the weather. She can hide behind them, as many do when we proclaim the gospel to them. In our class on, apolog on, on, uh, on evangelism, I talk about the 20 questions. You know, they'll begin throwing 20 questions at you because they don't want to answer that one question you've been asking. They want to change the subject. Jesus lets her know that such things are irrelevant when it comes to her eternal soul. That is what is at stake here for her now. In this moment. She's being confronted by God incarnate and there's no place for her to hide and no other refuge to flee to. That's what it's like when you come to Christ. Everything else goes black, disappears. And you've got this one burning question on the table. And you don't know quite what to do with it. Verse 21, Jesus said to her, Woman, remember he also said that to his mother, Woman, in other words, he's being affable at this point. He's making an emotional, a social connection with her, which in itself is rather strange. Woman, believe me. Believe, that word that's mentioned 70 times in this book. Believe me. Believe this. The hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You as a Samaritan who has abandoned the temple and the commandments of God, worship what you do not know. We, the people of God, worship what we do know. Why? Because salvation is from the Jews. They are the light unto the Gentiles. It is coming from one to the other. It begins at the center and then emanates outward. Indeed, there is a barrier between them, but it has nothing to do with where she comes from. It has nothing to do with where she worships. It's about where she's headed and whom she will serve. That's the question we ask when we evangelize. Whom will you serve? What is life for? What's your purpose? Why do you get up in the morning? There's a way that seems right to a man, but its end is the way of death, and that's the way she's been taking. And he says, time to stop going along that path. Time to take a different path. She cannot. She must not continue on the path she's on. She must be born again. You said that to Nicodemus, right? Chapter 3. That same thing is implied here. She must be freed from her bondage to sin and come to worship the one true living God. That's what he's calling her to. And there's only one way to have that happen. That way is standing before her. <laughs> he is the way and the truth and the life. And he's standing right there. Asking her if she will take his hand and follow him. 23. But the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking, is seeking such people to worship him. Jesus has come to seek and save that which was lost. Luke 19.10 The word for seek doesn't mean looking around. Like seeking a water fountain. That's not what it means. It means to seek something specific with the intent to find it and then to take possession of it. He has come for her, specifically. He has come for you, 
specifically. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. He's not just making a statement here. He's asking her a question. But there's no question mark on the end of it. I know. Nonetheless, it's a question. Are you such a person? It's between the lines, but boy, it's blaring loud. Are you such a person? Will you worship the Father in spirit and in truth? Don't worry about what others think or expect of you. How will you respond? This next sentence may sound like she's changing the subject again, but she's not. She knows about the prophet that Moses spoke of, the Messiah that Daniel spoke of, the suffering servant whose stripes would heal that Isaiah spoke of. She knows all those things. The woman said to him, I know that Messiah is coming. <laughs> wow. Wow. I know that Messiah is coming. He was called Christ. And when he comes, not if, he will tell us all things. He's finally going to reveal things to us. He's finally going to let us know what's true. And that's what Jesus is doing for her right here in this moment, personally. She believes in Messiah, but she just didn't know who he was. <laughs> in fact, that's the story of this whole book of John, isn't it? I just didn't realize who you were. She's been waiting for him. She's been expecting him, hoping against hope that he would come. This had been a day like any other as it began, and now it's become a day like no other she's ever had. Imagine the look of expectancy on her face as she said these things to this stranger, this man who knew her as she is and didn't turn away. And accepted her as she is and didn't try to avoid her. I don't know you. He didn't pull away from her. He didn't judge her. But he did test her. And now she's testing him again, holding her breath in eager anticipation. Jesus said to her, I, who speak to you, am he. Bam. Mic drop. A chance encounter that wasn't at all by chance. He came looking for her, and he found her, and he revealed himself to her in no uncertain terms. I'm that guy. I'm the one. And she went giddy with delight. It doesn't say that. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. She went giddy with delight. She's been waiting for him all her life, and her life would now never be the same. Verse 27, then, just then, his disciples came back. Interruption. They marveled that he was talking with a woman. <laughs> uh, but no one said to her, you know, what are you looking for? What do you seek? No one said to him, so why are you talking with her? <laughs> They see it's this private, intense, very personal, face-to-face -face conversation. They are not going to get between her and her Savior. So it looks like they've been learning over time. <laughs> they put their foot in it enough times they know when to keep their mouth shut. This is one of those occasions. They just stared at her, and then at Christ, and then back at her. <laughs> and she stared back at them, and then at Christ. And then she ran off. Verses 28 to 30 don't quite capture the excitement of the moment. 
says here, verse 28, so the woman left her water jar and went away. <laughs> there are lots of understatements in Scripture, aren't there? No, she abandoned it, and she took off running into town and said to the people excitedly and out of breath, come, come quick, 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 see a man who told me all that I ever did. Can this be the Christ? Can this be the Christ? She doesn't make a declaration of fact. I found the Christ. It's not like Andrew. She has no reputation that she can stand on to lend weight to her words, does she? Who would listen to her? So she invites them to see for themselves, to test Jesus for themselves, and then answer for themselves the vital question that she asks, can this be the Christ? Is this the Christ? Is it even possible? That's the only question on the table when we proclaim the gospel. We present the evidence just as John does here. And then we ask, who do you say Jesus is? That's evangelism 101. Now, how did these people respond? Verse 30. Well, they went out of the town and we're coming to them. <laughs> Again, I think that's a bit understated. When a tornado approaches a city, you could say, as the translators did here, that they exited the city. <laughs> I, I don't think that's what happens in a tornado. I don't think that's what happened here. It doesn't quite capture what's going on. I don't think they stopped off to pick up some groceries on the way or chit-chat over a cup of coffee at Starbucks. I don't think that's it. This woman who kept herself from the public eye for years, who was the talk of the town, who was mocked, was suddenly changed. She was no longer who she was. She was bold. She was excited, beside herself, grabbing everyone she could find, inviting them to come and see this man as she had seen him, and to hear him as she had heard him. I think they swarmed out of town and surrounded Jesus, peppering him with their questions and with their needs, eagerly anticipating as she did. Jesus Christ planted the seed of the gospel in this woman's heart, in good soil. You might expect that soil to be hard. After all, she's been off the path for years. Remember the parable of the sower? You might assume her heart was stony, or maybe her life was so filled with thorns and thistles that she couldn't hear the gospel. Do yourself a favor. Don't assume. Don't prejudge anyone. When God prepares the soil, there is no eye that cannot see, no ear that cannot hear. Those who are most deeply entrenched in sin are often the ones who are most receptive to the gospel. And that was the case here. That was the case with me. I had my heels dug in. I was not an agnostic. I was an atheist. And then I saw and then I heard and I was no longer the same. There's no sin that the blood of Christ cannot cleanse. No offense that cannot be given, forgiven in Christ. I said that to someone once. And he replied, you don't know what I've done. So I began listing some of the men and women in the Bible and their sins for him. Lying. Abraham. Stealing. Jacob. Prostitution. Adultery. Even murder. All were forgiven, I said to him. Though their sins were like scarlet, they were made as white as snow. Your sins, whatever they are, can be forgiven too. He turned away. 
but I could see that he was weeping. Could that be true? I think that was going through his head. Could that really be true? Even what I have done. That was Paul's reaction, wasn't it? You don't know the things I've done. I was a persecutor of the church. Yes, all of that can be covered by the blood of Christ. The seed of the gospel embodied in Jesus Christ and planted in this woman's soul immediately took root and blossomed. It yielded 30, 60, 100-fold what was sown. How do I know? Because she went into the town. And the whole town came back out. A lot of things that sound like, uh, you know, they're just ideas, concepts, you know, metaphors, you know, are literal. That's a literal one. She had scattered the seed she received. It was in God's hand which soil it might land on next. She didn't try to persuade them. She wasn't arm twisting. She wasn't trying to prove who Christ was. She simply said, come to Christ. Listen. Verse 31. Meanwhile, the apostles standing over here, oblivious as usual, were urging him, saying, Rabbi, you know, you should eat some manja. Any Italians? But he said to them, I have food to eat you don't know about. Like living water that he spoke about to this woman at the well, he often spoke to them in metaphors and parables and pictures. I have food to eat. He's speaking figuratively, isn't he? As usual, they hear it literally. <laughs> it's funny, really. Verse 33, so the disciples said to one another, has anyone brought him something to eat? Did I miss that? Did he go to 7-Eleven ahead of us or what? He patiently explains to them what he means. Verse 34, Jesus said to them, my food, let me explain the meaning of my saying, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. That's his food. That's our food. His food is our food. Of course, he's speaking of God the Father who sent his only beloved Son into the world, as we heard of communion, that whoever believes in him might not perish, but have eternal life. Got that last time, chapter 3. That's his mission. It's theirs too. It's ours too. And then Jesus draws a link between harvesting crops in a field to reaping souls for the kingdom of God. Seeds have been planted by others long before Jesus was born. Those, seed, those were the prophets I was mentioning. Those seeds were contained in the covenant promises of Scripture in the very words of God. Those are seeds. The words I speak are truth. They're seed. They're spiritual. They give life. They're the very words of God. They were recorded in the law and the prophets for all to read. They were passed on from parents to their children, generation upon generation upon generation before he ever walked the earth. And they would not return to God without accomplishing the purposes for which he sent them. That's Isaiah 55, 11. Verse 35 here in John chapter 4. Do you not say, yet there are four months and then comes the harvest? In other words, you plan ahead, you watch for the signs, you see what's coming, you make plans for it. To accommodate it. Look, I tell you, lift up your eyes. <laughs> Look around you. See that swarm coming out of the city? <laughs> lift up your eyes and see the fields are white for harvest. Already the one who reaps is receiving wages and gathering fruit for eternal life so that sower and reaper may rejoice together. 
For here the saying holds true, one sows and another reaps. I sent you to reap that for which you did not labor. Others have labored before you, my disciples, and you have entered into their labor. You're now joined in. You're part of the team. I started that team generations ago, millennia ago, and now you're part of the team. And you have entered into their labor. It takes everyone working together. What an image of the church. What an image of the church. What I do, of what you do, what God has done and is doing, it takes everyone working together. Those four verses from 35 to 38 are jam-packed with encouragement for all of us. So ask yourself, who are the sower and the reaper that Jesus refers to here? He's speaking to the disciples, but he's pointing to the town people, the ones this woman proclaimed the gospel to. She was sowing seed. The disciples will harvest it from the general. Now he's getting really specific. Might even have been doing one of those things. But the Spirit is at work in us all, both to sow and to reap, isn't he? I can't do anything without the Spirit's power, without his help, without him regenerating the ears that I'm speaking into. We're absolutely Spirit-dependent. God, nonetheless, makes use of his people to do his work. He makes you, use of you and me here today, this morning. Even those who aren't with us today, even those who aren't in our church, he's going to use to do his work. Jesus was doing the work of the Father, and he calls us to join him in that work. He made us fishers of men and harvesters in his field. We do not work alone no fisherman handles the boat and the nets on his own. Can't be done. No farmer can harvest the crops on his own. No winemaker can gather the grapes and press them on his own. It's a community effort. It's hard work to plow the soil and sow the seed. Prayers are constantly lifted up for rain, for healthy crop, because that's absolutely out of the farmer's control. So too for us. And then great joy comes at harvest time. Party time. All the laborers share the fruits of their labor with joy, and with thanksgiving to God, enjoying the fruits of their labor. That's where the phrase comes from. You have entered into the labor of all those who have gone before you. You have sown and reaped in your generation and what they sowed and reaped in theirs. So let's finish up the passage. Four more verses. Verse 39. Many Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. Wow. Wow. And what was her testimony? Well, it was a simple statement of fact. He told me all that I ever did. In other words, he knew me as no one else does. And yet he loved me enough to forgive me and to offer me living water. Where do you get that forgiving from? Where was that in the text? She was expecting the Messiah. She knows exactly why the Messiah is coming. She knows he's not coming as a conqueror. She knows he's not coming to be the next governor or president of the country. She knows he's coming to give his life, to redeem God's people. She told them about her own encounter with the Messiah. She didn't get into the theology of it. She didn't get into the doctrines of the faith or a five-point presentation. She told them what she knew. She shared with them what she herself experienced. That's all she did. 
She led them to the feet of Jesus Christ. She introduced them to him so that they might see and hear him for themselves. That's all we're called to do. You're nobody's Messiah. Your job is to lead them to the Messiah. And as a result of that, of that introduction of her, introducing her to, introducing them to Jesus Christ, many of them were likewise convinced and filled with joy. He instilled a hunger and a thirst in them that nothing else in this world could quench, that no earthly food could satisfy. They couldn't get enough of him. Where do you get that from, Bill? Verse 40. Glad you asked. So when the Samaritans came to him, they asked him to stay with them. And he stayed there for two days. And many more believed because of his word. So they weren't just there to, hiss, uh, to listen, to have their ears tickled. They actually believed what it was that he said. And because of his word, they believed. Not only hers. Hers to begin with, but his in the end. That's how it is when we evangelize. Our words to begin with, but then we point to Scripture and say, this is what it says, do you believe that? This is what God says, not what I say. That's how it is when we spread the gospel. We have a personal testimony of our own encounter with Christ. Let me tell you what happened to me. And then we introduce the other person to the Christ of Scripture. One without the other will not suffice. It doesn't matter what our own experience was, except as evidence of our conviction of the gospel truth. Your experience isn't going to convert anybody. The truth of God is what converts. But our testimony must not stop with our conviction of the truth. Our listener must likewise be convicted by the spirit of the gospel truth. And that is out of your control. That's why we can preach the gospel freely. Not feel, oh, if only I'd said this, if I wanted to use that argument, if only I did an if-then-else. No, no. God converts. Leave it in his hands. Do what it is you know. Say what it is you know. And then leave it in God's hands. That's how you can rest in Christ. That's how you don't take this guilt upon you or this burden that is not yours to bear upon you. Don't do that. That's Christ's burden. That's what the Holy Spirit does. You're a means, you're an instrument, but you are not, you are not the one who converts. They have to be convinced of who Christ is and what he did for them. Now on the flip side, that's why your testimony about what he did for you is not enough. They have to be convinced that he's going to do that for them, the other half of the equation. On the flip side, it's not enough that we present the facts of the gospel as if we're reciting the Gettysburg Address. If we don't display our conviction about it, our joy about it, our excitement about it, if we haven't been changed by the truth of the gospel, it's just information, isn't it? Like listening to the TV in the background. Ink on a page. Unimportant, unpersuasive. By contrast, this town of Sikhar was transformed by the gospel, both individually and as a community. Verse 41, they said to the woman, you know, it's no longer because of what you said that we believe, but we've heard for ourselves and we know that this is indeed the Savior of the world. That's called a public profession of faith. They're actually admitting it out loud. They agree with one another and they agree with Christ that he is indeed who he claims to be. 
She introduced him to Christ, just as John is introducing us through his gospel. And then they had a personal encounter with the Savior of the world. As it was with the woman at the well, it would be with these other believers. Life would never be the same for any of them. Even for those who didn't come to Christ, even for those who didn't believe in town, life would never be the same for them because they were surrounded by all these believers. They were going to have an impact on one another. Huh, imagine that. What then are we to learn from the story? Well, let's recap what we've learned about proclaiming the gospel. This Samaritan woman, a sinner, encountered the living God and Jesus Christ. Believing in him, believing that he was the promised Messiah who would save his people, she became a witness of this truth as she knew and understood it. Not something she read in a book, not reciting what somebody else had said. She's giving personal testimony. She became his ambassador to the people around her. That's all Christ asks of you. To speak on his behalf to those you know and meet. That's it. Casual conversation. Could turn out to have eternal consequences, but it's just a casual conversation. By the way, who do you say Jesus is? I'm Becky Morton. There's a conversation starter. <laughs> Let me do one of those. I don't know this one. He knows you better than you know yourself, and he loves you. He laid down his life for you to set you free from sin and death. Are you willing to lay down your life for him? To turn it over to him? To devote it to him as he devoted his life to you? Are you willing to do that? To share what you know and what you've experienced of that wonderful truth that's transforming you even now, even today? You no longer live, but Christ lives in you. What's the citation? Where's that from? Galatians 2.20. So let me repeat, as I have done a number of times, make that a memory verse. Galatians 2.20. I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life I live. Look it up. Memorize it. He laid down his life for you to set you free from sin and death. Do you love to tell that story? Do you love to tell the story? Is it your joy? Are you excited about it? Notify your face. Then tell it to everyone you know and everyone you meet on the way from here to there where you'll be in his eternal embrace. You'll see him face to face as he is. That's 1 John 3, 2, same author. So what happens when an opportunity to share the gospel presents itself? These are on your handout. Why? <laughs> because it's going to happen every time you present the gospel. I guarantee you're going to see that same four things that we saw in this passage. Number one, it's going to be when you least expect it. Jesus came to seek and save this lost woman at the well. She'd been waiting for him all her life, but here she is at the well just getting water. He's just come to get a drink. But she didn't know until the moment he revealed himself to her, it was unexpected. That's number one. When you least expect it. Number two, it's going to be inconvenient. It's always going to be inconvenient. She was in the middle of her daily chores. He was headed elsewhere. He asked her a question that made her set aside her burden for just a few minutes to hear the greatest story ever told. I got this story. You want to hear it? It's really neat. And you begin to present the gospel. Everybody loves a good story. These days, it's not well known. You could have a captive audience. Number three, the person won't realize that their eternal soul is at stake. 
they will not realize until you begin to speak to them about Jesus Christ that their eternal soul is at stake. This stranger simply wanted to talk with her about eternal things. He began with talking about water. We're talking about a drink. But it was actually about eternal things. He captured her attention. Okay, you got my attention now. What's this living water stuff? And by believing in Christ, she was changed forever. That will be true of the person you're speaking to by God's grace in his sovereignty. Number four, you'll meet resistance. <laughs> you're going to meet resistance. Gird your loins. <laughs> you're going to meet resistance. They're going to change the subject, those 20 questions I was talking about. Okay, They'll change the subject as this woman did, not realizing how thirsty they've been for this living water. They don't know it until you present it to them. When we invite people to our, to our care groups, the first thing we do is talk about what's for dinner. <laughs> we try to whet their appetite. <laughs> the other stuff comes along with it, right? And so it's the same way here. He whet her appetite. He caught her attention. She didn't know she was thirsty until he told her she was thirsty. And she went, come to think of it, yeah, I am. I didn't realize I'd been waiting all my life for you. This woman never thirsted again. She became a fountain of life to others as you are who have come to Christ, who believe in him. You're a fountain of life to everyone else around you. The worship team will come up. So cry out as Isaiah did, come, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters without money and without price. It's Isaiah 55, 1. God commissioned you to help the lost answer for themselves the only question that matters. And it's the same question that this woman at the well asked the people in her village. Who do you say Jesus is? Can he be the Christ? Let's pray. Lord God, the greatest story ever told, shared by your son with a, a woman he'd never met, but a woman he came seeking. May you give us opportunities this week and indeed for the rest of our life to bring people we don't know to us who are thirsty for living water, who are hungry for righteousness, who want to know Christ but don't know that they do. Help us to share with them. Help us to be bold. Help us to be persuasive with your words and not with ours. Help us to lead them to Christ, that they might know Christ, that they might believe He is the one that you promised, the one who will purge them of their sins, who accepts them as they are, but will not leave them where they are. May this be our testimony all the days of our life. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.